We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Scripture tonight is found in Second Chronicles and chapter 28. I'd like to ask you to turn there in your Bibles and we will take a look here. Second Chronicles 28. Second Chronicles uh, goes to chapter 36, so we've got a little bit more to go here. Before we're finished, we finish reading the Chronicles, the Chronicler. I had two questions, by the way, this week. Uh, one was in my Greek class uh, about uh, God's changing of his plan, it seemed, uh, with Nineveh and other um, uh, opportunities or things like that. So, for uh, example, this morning we see God changing uh, his uh, kind of demeanor toward the creation, remember? And we said that was an anthropomorphism or anthropopathism, and uh, the other question had to do with uh, some of the other uh, books that are mentioned in the Bible, and uh, we uh, talked about that with one of our young people yesterday, and uh, you'll see sometimes references to uh, other books of records of the kings of Judah, and uh, those were not um, intended by God to be included in the Bible, not inspired, so thus not a part of the canon of Scripture. But these are, and they chronicle the uh, southern kingdom mainly and all of its ups and downs, unfortunately more downs than ups. And uh, yeah, who needs, uh, who needs bad kings like this? Verse uh, 1 of chapter 28, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. So he must have died at the age of what? Boy, we can do the math. 36, that's pretty sad, isn't it? And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, so that's the northern kingdom now, and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So we might say that they came full circle back to what they had removed from the land. They came right back to it. They had not fully removed it or its memory and uh, went back to that terrible sacrificial system, including child sacrifice. It says in verse 4, And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Every opportunity uh, that he could, he had an altar and burned incense and sacrifices. Verse 5, Therefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria. They defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives and brought them to Damascus. Then he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who defeated him with a great slaughter. For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 in Judah in one day, all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. Zikri, a, man, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Maasiah, the king's son, Azikram, the officer over the house in Elkanah, who was second to the king. And the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and they also took 
away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. And he went out before the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Look, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand, but you have killed them with a rage that reaches up to heaven. And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves. But are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? Now hear me, therefore, and return the captives whom you have taken captive from your brethren, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Then some of the heads of the children of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Johanan, Barakai the son of Meshalemoth, Jehizkiah the son of Shalom, and Amasa the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who came from the war and said to them, You shall not bring the captives here, for we already have offended the Lord. You intend to add to our sins and to our guilt, for our guilt is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the leaders and all the assembly. Then the men who were designated by name rose up and took the captives, and from the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them, dressed them, and gave them sandals, and gave them food and drink, and anointed them, and they let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys. So they brought them to their brethren at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. At the same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. For again, the Edomites had come, attacked Judah, and carried away captives. The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the lowland and of the south of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, Gedarot, Soko and its villages, Timnon with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and they dwelt there. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Also Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. For Ahaz took part of the treasures from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, and from the leaders, and he gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, Because the gods of the kings of Syria help them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all of all Israel. So Ahaz gathered, all, uh, gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoke the, uh, to anger the Lord God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. What book do you suppose that is? The kings? So Ahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. That's quite an interesting uh, account, isn't it? Um, Too bad for the nation of Israel at that time. Uh, May we not be like him and uh, follow the ways of the world in this day and age. All right, we're uh, moving on to Matthew chapter 24 and 25 tonight. If you would 
join me there this evening. Appreciate it. All right, chapter 24 and 25. We have uh, introduced the chapter, the historical uh, setting of it in the Lord's ministry. We uh, emphasized last time, this was Wednesday night, that we should be uh, careful to, to recognize that we can be more clear in our understanding of these matters than the disciples can uh, because we have more revelation, we have a clearer picture of things, and so we should be. Uh, I, it's, it's hard to see folks who say, well, we ought to just um, you know, give up on some of these prophetic passages because they're so hard and uh, they're so esoteric or difficult, but we can, we can make some good progress in understanding them. We know the general outline of future events. We've taught that here many times. Um, if I were to give you a blank piece of paper and a pencil or a pen, I wonder if you'd be able to write out what is next on the calendar. What is next on the calendar? Can you think of that? The Lord's promise to return at the rapture, the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and then the eternal state after, well, the millennial kingdom and then a little, a little hiccup, if you will, of the... Uh, Hey, <laughs> there you are. Ian, looks like somebody's here for you. There you are. Um, so uh, after a little hiccup with the rebellion of Satan at the end of the millennial kingdom, then uh, we have the eternal state. The judgment, of course, comes in there as well. But that's the general outline of events. Now, what I've done there, though, is I've made kind of a an oversimplification because the general outline of future events in the big picture may not be how it turns out for you or me in this sense. There's a personal eschatology that we have to think about as well. And so we may, the next thing on our calendar may be we die and we go to the intermediate heaven to be with the Lord if we're Christians, Hades if we're not Christians, and then the world events will unfold as they do and we'll experience the resurrection of the body at the same time the church is raptured, which is that next event on the kind of overall timeline. But our personal timeline may be a little modified from that. In fact, most people's is. I know even our dear brother, Dr. Yango, would have hoped to uh, arrive at the rapture or live until the rapture of the church and then experience that in this flesh in this world and this body, but he did not. And so many of us and many of our forefathers, all of our forefathers, of course, have, have experienced the same in the matter of personal eschatology. We began the chapter, and so we can understand what's going to happen here. There's, there's, you can kind of just fit it in nicely. Jesus is in the temple. He walks out of the temple precinct again one of the evenings or late afternoons in the Passion Week, and the disciples exclaimed to him how beautiful the buildings are of the temple. Jesus kind of shocks them into a conversation about the future events and the signs of his coming by saying to them, look, all of these stones that you see here, all these massive building stones that are here to construct this temple that Herod and company have put there, all of them are going to be destroyed, just torn down. I mean, besides the, the western or wailing wall, as it's called, there's nothing left, certainly nothing left of the temple itself. This is just kind of a few foundation stones. 
uh, there in, in the city long, uh, from long ago, but uh, nothing really left. And so we understood this to refer to 70 A.D. when the city was ransacked, when uh, Titus the general came in, when the temple was destroyed, when in effect an end came to Old Testament religion. There's no more sacrifice. There was uh, you know, no more worship at the temple, the central altar. It was gone. So thus changed the whole kind of face of Jewish worship uh, there. And um, so the rest of the chapter, though, does not focus on the destruction of the temple. As important as that event is and the longing of the Jewish person to have their temple back in operation, that's not the focus, which is kind of strange because you would expect a Jewish author with a Jewish Messiah, Jewish disciples, to be focused on that. But actually, it moves on to other things this chapter does. And the disciples ask, well, when will these things be, verse 3, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They privately ask these two questions, when and what are the signs? And the chapter answers those questions. Uh, We um, will go through then the the chapter with that in mind, that we're answering these two questions, when and what signs, and uh, we'll see what uh, we, we make of it. People are always looking for signs today, uh, signs in the heavens, signs in the, you know, coincidences, signs in the news. Um, But we're going to look a little bit, I hope, clear-eyed, more clear-eyed at these signs that the Lord mentions to us. And that starts in verse number four, where we left off last time. And I call these, I call these kind of, strangely, almost signs, almost signs, not quite signs. Um, It says in verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, and saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. So, In verse 6, the Lord said, what is the last phrase there? Look at it carefully. The end is not yet. So that's why I call these almost signs or not yet signs. These are the beginning of sorrows, verse number 8 says. They are, uh, you know, they wanted to know when the end was going to be. And Jesus says, with these signs, the end is not yet. Are you with me? So if you're, if you're looking at the news and you're saying, oh, famines and earthquakes and, and wars and rumors of wars, and all the, the, it's almost here. Well, the Lord said it's not yet with those signs, okay? So be cautious about assigning a kind of value to the present-day news to kind of amp you up into a mode of saying, well, there it is. It must be at the door immediately. Not yet. The beginning of sorrows refers, obviously, to the early and less severe pains that uh, portend childbirth. They may extend over a period of time, but they are definitely before the real labor comes. So um, Braxton Hicks contractions are the not yet. Not yet. You wish it might be over with, but it's not yet. Uh, They become more intense as birth nears. 
and uh, the beginning of, of sorrows uh, tell us that the end result of birth is coming, but not yet. So these pains that Jesus speaks of are associated with the end, but are not quite at the very end. We are in the last days, the last hour, as John would say, the last time, the last age, the last era before the unfolding of the mighty work of God to open his kingdom. Now, this, the Lord gives several signs here. Number one, he says that there will be deception by false Christs. Take heed, he says, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and will deceive many. So you have the deception by false Christs. Now, do you know of anybody today, right now, who is claiming to be the Messiah? How about historically? Are you aware of others who have claimed to be the Messiah? We have heard of some, uh, some kind of small-time figures, some Jewish uh, rabbi types over the years. There are others who have been assigned a messianic, or some would say messianic significance. I say messianic. Some political figures, messianic significance. Great orators, many people begin to follow them. Um, there are, you know, cultish leaders who are style themselves as messiahs, as Christs. Um, and then I think we need to kind of, how can I say, tune up our ears to look at what the world thinks are their saviors. They're not exactly going around necessarily and saying that, you know, I am the Jewish Christ, but they are suggesting they're the saviors of the world, uh, the, um, you know, the elites that have the money and the power, and uh, they know what's best for the masses, and they can solve all of our world's problems if we just, you know, whatever, change to electric cars or, you know, things like this that, you know, our, our, our solutions. Uh, we, we, we somehow modify the, the environment so that, you know, we get the kind of outcome we want and we can stop those hurricanes from coming and killing people and stuff like that. It's, it's all utter foolishness, but deception by false Christs. There are false saviors running around all over the place over the decades and centuries, and we need to be tuned up to not be deceived by them. Secondly, he says, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Well, we don't have to look very far to see that. I mean, how many wars have there been in your lifetime? Just in your lifetime. Some of us are, uh, well, we'll say uh, in our 40s, uh, have been alive when uh, Vietnam was going on and, uh, you know, the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War and uh, Afghanistan and uh, uh, I don't even, I get first Gulf War, second Gulf I don't even know which ones now. There's just so many different things that have gone on. And little more, more little skirmishes, of course, the war against terror, uh, the attacks that came against us. I mean, wars. Now we have a war going on in Ukraine, and that's, it's, it's big, and I think it's bigger than some people realize. You have people now really talking about World War III. 
that's a rumor. It's not yet, but they're talking about it. So it's a rumor of a war. And it's a very scary one, especially for those of us that have young men who would be of draftable age in the next few years. Um, and for what? Why would we go to war? Uh, why does one country march into another one and take it over? Like, really, there's some you know, super great reason to do this that couldn't have been accomplished through other means, some isolation means or some economic sanctions or something. Uh, it's frustrating. But the, 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 the Lord here says you're going to have wars and rumors of wars. And then finally, there are going to be natural kinds of disasters, although actually, you know, many famines are not natural disasters. You know what they are? Man-made, man-made shortages, economic systems that have been twisted and corrupted so that you have, you know, something like what we had recently, shortages of things that are, I mean, it's unnecessary that there be shortages of toilet paper. Do we not know how to make toilet paper? Do we not know how to put it on a truck and ship it to a store? Of course we do. Um, shortages of baby formula. I mean, didn't anybody see this coming? Couldn't any regulator have imagined like, oh, if we shut down the largest plant or whatever, one of these huge plants that we're going to have a problem? Uh, and they just sat on it and didn't fix it for a long time. Uh, but in any case, whether man-made or natural disasters, there certainly are you know, droughts and things. Uh, uh, but, but I would, I would, I wonder though if the most people have died from man-made famines or from drought famines. I would almost think it's man-made if you look at the history of some of the communist regimes and what they did to their people. But in any case, that being the case, the Lord says uh, there will be the wars, rumors of wars, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. And I suppose he could have added whirlwinds in there, tornadoes and hurricanes, right? Cyclones and typhoons. And I, I wish I had in my head all the difference between those terms, but uh, they're all bad, so it doesn't matter. But it um, depends on where in the world they are and stuff. But anyway, pestilences, you know, bubonic plague, black death, covid uh, swine flu, all the different respiratory viruses, all these, uh, what's that one? Ebola, you know, that was not a widespread pestilence, but it was, and boy, a scary disease, isn't it? Hemorrhagic fever diseases that just rage through the body and cause such damage. Um, people have, such, have to take such efforts to survive, uh, even if, they, if it's possible they, they can survive. So you have all of those. Now, some interpreters correlate these events to the very early days of the tribulation itself. I believe that they can be interpreted more broadly to include the present era leading up to the rapture and the tribulation. These kinds of events will lead to or characterize the time leading up to the coming of Christ. The indicators will be continuing throughout the present age leading up to the very end. There's a feature of human memory called recency bias that makes us think that things that are um, more recent uh, maybe are worse than what they were before. Or we may have an, an emphasis because we've experienced what is recent, we forgot everything before, 
We might say, you know, those good old days when the good old days weren't really all that good. And we think we have it so bad because, you know, we love to complain. Witness the text of Scripture that says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Why do you think God had to tell us that? Well, because we love to complain uh, and dispute about things. But <clears throat> the reality is that things have been as bad many times throughout world history and are very bad in countries that are given over to totalitarian rule. And uh, we've seen even a little ebb and flow in our own nation in recent years. But you think about it. Uh, you think you have it bad? You better stop and think again, friends. You don't live in communist-dominated countries. You don't live in uh, you know, progressive left totalitarian uh, countries like you know, some of our friends to the north and other places in the world. We have problems, but we need to remember that just because we see some of the problems here, we have to have a more of a global view. And remember, too, think of, uh, of Genesis chapter 6. The Lord sees the evil intents of the hearts of man all the time. And uh, we see some of the similar things, but can you imagine how bad it was back then? No police, no standing armies, no national boundaries perhaps, really big problems. The Lord says these are the beginning of sorrows. They are mild compared to what will come during the tribulation. Did you get that? The things that were, are going on now are mild compared to what's going to be going on during the tribulation. Now, the Lord gives us two basic responses to this, and I want you to grab a hold of these, carry them with you. First of all, he says a couple times, do not be deceived, okay? Don't be deceived. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many are going to come in my name and will deceive many. You know, people will follow these saviors, these uh, gurus, these experts in you know, field X or Y or Z, gullibly following that they have the answers. You know, you see this all the time online. Uh, they say, you know, a two-hour class or we'll you know, sign you up in our program and, you know, before you know it, you'll be day trading and making thousands of dollars and we've got the secrets and all. Look, that's ridiculous. They, there's so many of those scams and all they're doing is getting people to sign up for their class and pay their fees and whatever and maybe get them involved in a Ponzi scheme or something at worst. But um, there's no quick secret tricks to getting rich or, or, or solving all your health problems or whatever the case is. So don't be deceived. Don't be gullible. Don't be a fool. Don't be naive. And then the second thing is do not... Th now listen to this. This will blow your mind. What does the Lord say in verse number? Uh, let's see if I can find it here. Verse 6, in the middle of the verse, see that you are not troubled. See that you are not troubled. How often have you thought, man, the way that things are going in our country, the way that things are going in the world, that's troubling. Well, why do you think the Lord said, don't be troubled? Because he knows our tendency to be troubled. He's telling us, don't be troubled. Yeah, we understand Lot was vexed, seeing the filthy conduct of the wicked all the time. But don't be troubled. 
Why not be troubled? Well, we know that these things must happen, but we know also that the end is not yet. You know, the end of the world is not here just yet. Even if the temperature rises one more degree, we're not all going to die. These things are the beginning of sorrows. In other words, do not get worked up into a fit about it. Can I say it this way? Settle down. Don't be troubled. Listen, you might think, oh, this is so terrible. The Lord is telling us it's normal. It's the new normal, and it's the old normal. It's the everyday normal. There's nothing new. It is the way things are in a sinful world. It's not nice, but it is what it is. Now, we have the unique power from God to live at peace in a world that is full of such trouble and fear and deception and all of that. But we should not be surprised at the expressions of human depravity today that look much like the extra bad expressions of depravity prophesied to come near the end. Why is it the new normal and the old normal all simultaneously? Because human nature has not changed one little inch. It's all the same as what it was after the fall of man into sin. Every person is capable of the worst sins. You don't think you are? You're already on the way to doing it. Okay? Um, very much want to warn you, don't be deceived, don't be troubled, and don't think that you can't become involved even in some of these things because you can in your sinfulness. Now, the signs are going to increase when the coming of the Lord draws nearer. Verse 9 all the way through verse 26. Uh, let me read a few of those just to get our uh, appetites whetted here. Verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So here we are getting closer to the end. Heavy persecution and more false prophets will mark this end coming time, verses 9 to 12, as the world enters the tribulation itself, which is after the rapture, that period of seven years as we're taught in Scripture. There will break out terrible persecution against Christ's followers. All the nations will hate Christ's people. We see the seeds of that today, don't we? Yeah, the hatred of Christians. We've seen it in the times past, too. You see what people did to Christians in communist countries, for example, over the years? Uh, it seems the, they couldn't squash out Christianity, could they? Because God's work continued. Uh, unabated, although abused, to be sure, but God cannot be stopped. The Word of God cannot be bound. But family members even will betray one another to death. Hate will rise to pandemic proportions. Notice again, there'll be more false teachers, more false prophets. They'll bring, they'll bring deception about all kinds of matters. They will teach that wrong is right and right is wrong. We have those prophets today. They're called news people. They're called uh, daytime television show hosts. They're called YouTubers, uh, TikTokers now. That's the new thing, you know. 
Um, and uh, they're busily promoting their philosophies, many of which are sinful and evil and uh, are deceiving about all kinds of matters. The groundwork is laid already for the early birth pangs, but it will become far more pronounced. The labor uh, episodes will get closer and closer. Lawlessness will abound. Love will grow cold. Doesn't sound too far-fetched, does it? Lawlessness, for example. You know, who thought we would be talking a few years ago about just utter lawlessness? Allowing people to, to loot, hundreds of people to go into a store and just steal stuff and, uh, and walk off with it and, uh, or riot in the streets and burn down cities and, and hardly have any, any uh, consequences at all. The Bible says in verse 13 that the ones who exist in that circumstance will have a real trouble in uh, you know, lasting, but it says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, this verse has been misused to kind of pulled out of context to say, ah, here's a verse that says you've got to endure to the end in order to be saved from sin. And so it's used to teach the doctrine of perseverance of the saints or, or worse, to teach that somebody must uh, you know, endure work continue to, um, to uh, I don't know, what. how can I say it? Not to persevere. We believe in perseverance that true believers will believe, but it kind of puts a works flavor to it. And uh, if you, you know, fall short, then you think, oh, man, I've lost it, and get into this Arminian cycle of never being able to be sure that you're saved. Now, it, before, uh, years ago, I simply held that the, those who physically survived to the end would be saved physically delivered through the tribulation. But it's evident that some believers and some unbelievers are going to survive to the end of the tribulation. How do we know that? Because in Matthew 25, the Bible says the Lord gathers the, or the angels gather the nations before the Lord and the Lord puts the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left hand. So those people, the only place they could have come from is out of the tribulation. There's believers and there are unbelievers in that group. And so those unbelievers also endured to the end, but they're not saved, are they? They're not rescued. In effect, uh, they, are, they are brought to this place of judgment and then cast out, uh, removed, not allowed to go into the kingdom. So um, it's more accurate to understand that those who live in the tribulation and survive with their faith intact and their love not cold, these ones will be rescued physically and brought into kingdom blessing. Chapter 24 indicates that. There are others who will survive, but will be cast out like goats in that judgment. That's the end of chapter, well, not the end, but chapter 25, 41 to 46. Also happening during this time, it says in verse 14, there will be the universal preaching of the gospel. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, we don't preach the gospel to the ends of the earth in order to make the end come. We preach the gospel to the ends of the earth because Christ has told us to do so in the Great Commission. And some have, have suggested that in the present age, you have to get the gospel to every corner of the globe geographically, every person, every tribe, every tongue before the Lord Jesus can return. 
And the unintended consequence of that doctrine is you deny the imminency of the return of Christ. In other words, if you say, well, there's some, there's some tribe that has never heard the word or doesn't have the Bible in their language, so Jesus can't come back yet. No, Jesus can come back whenever he pleases, whenever, whenever the Lord's time, Father's timing is. At any time, that could happen. So the, the gospel does not need to be preached to all nations before Christ raptures the church because after the rapture, it will be preached to all the nations throughout the tribulation time. Even so, the fact is that today, did, did that sound bad to you? It sounded like I contradicted the scriptures. The, what I'm saying is that the gospel doesn't have to be preached to all nations before the rapture occurs. It has to be preached before the end of this age, which is the tribulation included. That's the difference. Um, even so, the fact is that today, as far as I can tell, we cannot say that the gospel is hidden to any geographic section of the globe. Where on the globe can you say there is no gospel and never has been the gospel? It's pretty tough to find a place like that. Of course, there may be pockets here and there where we have not reached language difficulties and intercultural or cross-cultural difficulties. But the problem is, is actually worse. I mean, if we think about it in terms of teaching the gospel in geographical regions, we've missed out probably the most difficult part of the gospel. If we just, if everything, if every Christian witness in Ann Arbor stopped right now and we were able to just freeze ourselves and come back in 50 years, you have two more generations of people who have never heard the gospel and thus once again, this place has fallen into a state of disrepair where people have not heard. That's the case with the world population. The world population is always churning. It's always turning over. And so a place that was reached, like in the Middle East, and then, say, for some couple generations, the, uh, the Muslims take over and they don't allow the gospel to be preached, well, that place needs the gospel again. You have to continue to send missionaries. And this is actually the work of the local churches that are planted in those areas, in every area. Our job is to continue witnessing our, to our Jerusalem and Judea because there are new people coming in all the time. I mean, in 10 years, there's a whole bunch of more people. And in this place, if all they did is go to, to public school and, and entertain themselves and play soccer, they don't know the gospel. They haven't heard. So it's a, it's a very difficult situation. So we have a big job. What gospel is preached here? Jesus answers our question by saying in verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached. And it's, not, it's not a full gospel. It's not the entire gospel. If you say, yep, you can be born again, saved, washed from your sins, going to heaven, but the rest of the world is going to stay always the way it is. The government is always going to be corrupt. Uh, you know, the elites are always going to run this place. The communists are always going to be here. The progressives are always going to do their thing. Lawlessness will always abound. Individual salvation is not all that the gospel is. The gospel includes more than that. So it's not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for sin, or our need, or our repentant faith response. Um, this is the, the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that God is going to establish a kingdom with Jesus as king on this earth over Jerusalem and the entire globe 
And I'll refer you back to some messages I gave a few years ago on the gospel of the kingdom. They're available for you on the website. Personal salvation kind of fits into and underneath this gospel of the kingdom. In this way, you need to be born again or else you will not enter into that kingdom and enjoy the kingdom of Christ. Okay, so individual salvation is very important, but God's doing more than that, much more than that. Who will do this kingdom gospel preaching? The Lord says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. Oh, you're just yearning for him to turn that into an active voice verb and to tell us who is going to do the preaching. Okay, are you with me, Jackson? Active voice, not passive? Okay, yeah, all right, good, good. Your grammar's working on you. Um, Well, who's going to do this? We have to look elsewhere in the scripture. Evidently, the uh, 144,000 in Revelation 7 will be doing this work. There will be Jewish missionaries who will minister the gospel across the world. Uh, And it seems that those that are mentioned later in chapter 7 of Revelation are those who were saved as a result of their ministry, multitudes of people. I think the two witnesses in Revelation 11 will be witnesses of this gospel. Uh, they, they won't only be breathing out fiery judgment as you read in Revelation 11, but they'll undoubtedly have a part in proclaiming the truth of the coming king. And then thirdly, there's also an angelic messenger described as flying in the mid-heaven over the earth, and that's in Revelation 14. Listen to this uh, interesting little tidbit from Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Further pronouncements are made after that, but here he's preaching the everlasting gospel of Christ. So the, the 144,000, then the two witnesses, then this angelic messenger preaching the gospel. All right, one more little section here. We'll talk about just briefly verses 15 to 20. The Lord says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, parentheses, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. I have to wonder how pregnant moms feel about that verse when I read it like that. You think, oh my, can you imagine expecting a child and being in this kind of distress that the Lord advises, now this is during the tribulation, not in this present age, when you see that terrible thing, the abomination of desolation happen in the temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation, about the midpoint of that tribulation, you need to run. Don't don't look back, Lot's wife. Don't get your stuff out of your house. Flee, flee. Leave, because it's about to get extraordinarily bad. Flee to the mountains. Don't go down into your house. Don't go to get your you know, clothes out of the, the house or whatever. Just flee, flee for your life. 
very bad times indeed. This abomination of desolation refers to the desecration of the temple by the Antichrist. Not a lot of detail is given, but as foretold in Daniel 9.27 and seems to have a, uh, not this, but a, an event kind of prototypical of it or foreshadowing of it happened under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes when he uh, slaughtered a pig on the altar and uh, forced Jews to eat pork. Um, terrible in the intertestamental period. In this event of the abomination, the Antichrist will claim to be God as he takes his seat in the temple, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. The reader is referred to Daniel, and in the parentheses it says, let the reader understand. So, uh, you know, people again will say, oh, this is so confusing, and what does this mean and everything. The Bible tells us to understand, tells us to pay attention, to dig into it if we have to, to try to understand what's going on here. We've done our best to do that as, as ministers of the gospel in our orbit of Christianity, and, uh, and I think we've come up with a very satisfactory and good understanding of these things. You can too. Jesus indicates that Daniel's prophecy is for a future time, a time associated with Jesus' second coming, not with the coming of the Romans, and not historically with Antiochus Epiphanes IV. When the abomination occurs, people are to leave and flee because very bad things are coming. And uh, he's going to say in verses 21 uh, and 22 that uh, there's going to be great tribulation. There's going to be the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, it'll be about the middle of that seventh, uh, seven-year period. It will be unprecedented in its devastation and cruelty. Uh, yes, yes, we've had the history of the Holocaust. Yes, we've had the history of the Middle Ages. Yes, we've had uh, the savagery of war in uh, ancient times even in modern times, in the last 100 years. We are just speaking about trench warfare at our home at lunchtime. The savagery of all of it, the savagery of abortion and all of that, we're going to have that times 10 or 100 or whatever during the tribulation, unprecedented devastation. And apart from divine intervention, no one would survive. This will be a second eschatological, as it were, second holocaust. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of distress. It's the opening portion of the day of the Lord, Zephaniah 1.14 says. And there'll be a lot of deception, false Christs, false prophets. Verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Did you notice that? They're going to show signs and wonders. They're not just going to be magic tricks. They're going to be demonic, miraculous kinds of events to try to deceive. You're going to have to be pretty sharp during this time, pretty soaked in your Bible to make sure that you don't get deceived. See, he says, verse 25, I have told you beforehand. And then verse 26, therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. You won't need anybody to tell you, go in the secret place here or go out into the desert and follow this guru out here. Everybody will see. You see the bolt of lightning from miles around, and there's no question that that happened. Look beyond the prima facie statements to the real explanation. Find out underlying spiritual reasons 
uh, for the things that are going on. You know, powers that be are in full practice mode for this sort of thing today. And although we do not need to worry about living through the tribulation, we need to practice this kind of discernment to not be deceived. We need to not just follow the money, we need to follow the depravity. Do not be hoodwinked. Do not be naive. I can tell you sometimes you hear people say, oh, that could never happen. Oh, open your eyes, people. You know, Sometimes they say, oh, that could never happen. It just happened in front of their eyes, and they don't recognize that it happened. Sad, sad that we can be so gullible and so deceived. So if I'm to kind of summarize anything I want you to take home, don't be deceived. Uh, be, you know, don't be gullible, don't be naive, don't be dumb, but look for the real reasons, the underlying cause, the real information. Don't just take what some talking heads are telling you. And then the other thing is, besides not being deceived, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. We often <clears throat> get twisted around about these matters, and we shouldn't. So be aware of that. Don't be troubled, don't be deceived. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing these things to us through your Son and the apostles. Help us to be clear-headed, clear-minded about the things that uh, happen in the world and uh, that we would not be deceived and would not be troubled by these things, knowing that they are exactly what you've planned. Thank you for these dear ones who have come tonight, those that are serving upstairs and the children, uh, helping them to learn the word. And I pray that tonight, this week our week will be good, that we'll rest well tonight, and that you would watch over us, protect us, keep our feet from the paths of sin. If any iniquity be found in us, Lord, help, it, uh, help us to confess it and to be rid of it. In Jesus' name.